3 triple dead 92.3 FM. The following program is in English. Thank you. To life. You're tuned in to L'Chaim, to life, with your host, Morris Klein, who just happens to be my baby brother. L'Chaim, L'Chaim, L'Chaim. Shalom Aleichem, welcome to another installment of L'Chaim, to life, Jewish life and more. And as always, it's a jam-packed L'Chaim. I head over to South Africa and meet up with David Hirsch, Chairman of SIPAC, the South African-Israel Public Affairs Committee, which is doing great work. If he takes us to another spectacular place in Israel, Justin Amler, great writer, tells us about Jews. We have our regular INTR news from Israel, the Australian Jewish news headlines for tomorrow, some songs and one of my very, very favourite Jewish comedy clips. First up, Murray Frankel's guest is Professor Sharon Lewin with some very interesting COVID information. You're listening to L'Chaim 2 Life, connecting our Jewish community here on 92.3 FM, 3 Z. Professor Sharon Lewin is the inaugural director of the Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity. The laboratory is focused on finding a cure for human immunodeficiency virus the cause of AIDS. But as a leading infectious diseases expert, she's increasingly being called upon to discuss the COVID-19 global pandemic. We at L'Chaim are grateful to Sharon for finding time in her busy schedule to talk about this important topic. Sharon, welcome to L'Chaim. Pleasure to be here, Maury. What lessons are there to be learned in the way Israel and Australia have dealt with the pandemic, both before and since the availability of vaccines? I would say that the response of Israel and Australia prior to vaccination was actually quite different. Started similarly, Israel actually went out with quite a decisive sort of stance against importing COVID. They closed their borders very quickly, as did we. We closed our border with China on February the 1st, and it subsequently followed perhaps a little delayed with closures to Europe and US and elsewhere. Israel actually closed their borders very quickly, but they never had a system of very efficient test tracing and isolating or a system that really um, limited people's movement, um, implemented and extended for a period of time. So Australia did that very successfully. Of course, we had you know a significant outbreak in Melbourne, but overall we've had a strategy of essentially eliminating COVID with testing, tracing and isolating people and closing our borders. Israel really had a much tougher time with a lot more infections and therefore a lot more deaths than what we experienced in Australia. Fast forward to the vaccination, Israel's had a incredible vaccination program, probably unlike any other country in the world. They went out quickly straight for an mRNA vaccine. They went for Pfizer and they managed to secure Pfizer for the whole country um, and rolled it out quicker than almost any other country with pretty spectacular watch. Did that in the setting of a crisis in their country with large numbers of hospitalizations and deaths. So they had no option, but they did it very effectively and more effectively than any other country. Australia was in a very different position. We felt we had time because we didn't have an overwhelmed hospital system. We backed a number of different strategies, including one we could make ourselves. And of course, that panned out to be a lot more complicated than going for an mRNA-only strategy. So where are we now? You know, Israel has, I think, over 90% of their elderly vaccinated and over 65% of their whole population vaccinated. Pretty incredible. And Australia, we are, you know, at the very beginnings, really, of a vaccination program that's rolling out very, very slowly. It's been significantly affected by the choice of vaccines being AstraZeneca. So, you know, back in October last year, no one would have had any idea that this is the position we would find ourselves in. Well, it's interesting that um, there seems to be a, a, a hesitancy to have the vaccine, but... I was reading recently in the Atlantic magazine, I had a feature article on long COVID, and there seems to be very little in the Australian media 
about this potentially debilitating complication of what is a mild infection. Is this condition being seen in Australia? And if so, shouldn't it be used to further stress the importance of being vaccinated? Um, I assume you're talking about long COVID, correct? Yes, that's right. Long-term complications of often mild infection, about 10 to 15% of people suffering from respiratory complications or brain dysfunction and a whole sort of constellation of different symptoms, which can be really very debilitating. I think there is an awareness of long COVID, but the real challenge that we have in Australia is that there's so little COVID infection. So the prospects of long COVID or the prospects of severe illness, hospitalisation and even death is not very real for Australians, especially right now, where we're essentially, um, apart from these occasional outbreaks of COVID in um, different places, we are not seeing any COVID infection. So that is our challenge, a vaccine strategy that's a bit complicated, a vaccine that has got rare but has got an adverse event and people seeing little need for vaccination, but they really are so wrong because what we are doing now, which is trying to fight small, you know, leaks of, of virus into our community with test, trace, isolate and intermittent lockdowns is really not sustainable. Mm. And the only way we're going to return to normal life is with the vaccination. And the sooner Australians sort of accept that um, and, the, you know, more clearer message that we can get from our government on vaccination, the better. Yes, that's a, a, a very good segue into my uh, next question, is that the government is basing its decisions on controlling COVID squarely on scientific advice. And there's a push to make earlier and earlier calls on the direction in which the pandemic is heading. How difficult is it to successfully communicate complex scientific data which may be incomplete and even conflicting at times to the government and to the broader community? Well, I think we should be pretty proud of our political leaders who have responded to scientific advice from the beginning, uh, which very few other countries enjoyed the level we have had in Australia. And overall, although there's a lot of misinformation out there, I think the trust in science is high. I think what is hard to communicate, and, and, the, and the literacy is high, you know, the knowledge of around viruses and epidemiology and vaccines, my God, it's grown incredibly over the last 15 months. However, I think what people find really difficult is, or non-science find really difficult, is when advice changes. You know, science is not black and white. Science is, we accumulate knowledge over time as we test and more things and ask more questions and here we have this new virus we knew absolutely nothing about it back in January 2020 and have learnt an enormous amount. What I think is the most confusing for communities is when advice changes because you've got to be really transparent about the reason for the change and we saw that with mask wearing for example. We've seen that with safety around AstraZeneca and, and it's really important that there's never a perception that people are hiding the truth from the community, but that they understand this is how science unfolds. You know, we don't have all the answers at the beginning. We learn more things and we adapt to that new knowledge. And that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. It doesn't mean that the vaccine program's in chaos because we're changing the rules. It means that we're being adaptable and responding to the latest science. But I think that is probably the most difficult thing to explain and then to maintain confidence from the broader community. And we just finish off with a question about your research on uh, HIV. Has there been anything in from the astonishingly rapid development of a vaccine against COVID that may impact on the way that you are approaching a cure for um, AIDS? Yes, I think there will be many lessons that will be transferred into the HIV cure and vaccine arena. But I'd also like to flip it back because there are many things that have benefited COVID that come from decades of research into HIV. So mRNA vaccines have been in development throughout the last 15 years. They've been developed for cancer, but they've also been developed for tricky infections for which we don't have a vaccine, primarily HIV. 
there we use we're using antibodies as treatments for COVID nineteen that we'll start to hear a lot more about as we've learnt better how to administer those antibodies for COVID. And all of that work in developing antibodies as treatments for COVID has largely come out of investment in HIV. And finally, that all the ways that we test for COVID, PCR tests or antigen tests, rapid tests, a lot of that has leveraged drop investment over decades in HIV. Now, flipping it the other way, yes, I do think there'll be lots of things that we will have, we already are learning that the pace of understanding of mRNA, how to manufacture it, how to transport it, how to develop it cheaper and quicker, all of that will be very important for HIV. But it, I will make one point that curing HIV and finding a vaccine for HIV is much, much harder than for COVID. They're very, very different viruses. And as tricky as COVID has been, um, HIV also has many, many tricks making a cure and a vaccine extremely difficult despite decades of research already. However, the last 15 months will certainly change things for the future for HIV and I think for many other infectious diseases. Well, thank you very much, Sharon, for an extremely interesting discussion and uh, we wish you all the best in your research interests and uh, for the future. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks very much. Absolute pleasure. That was quite an amazing behind-the-scenes COVID insight that Murray had with Professor Sharon Lewin along with the latest AIDS treatment developments at the end. It all can't come soon enough. Let's have a listen to Robin Archer singing a 19th century French street song. Here comes cholera. You're listening to L'Chaim 2 Life, connecting our Jewish community here on 92.3 FM 3 Triple Z. Don't go away. Apparently awaiting cholera, the feeling's positive. No one knows when it will come, but if you ask them, they're affirmative. There's the cholera, there's the cholera, there's the cholera that's coming from one end to the other. All the world is gonna clock. There's the cholera, there's the cholera, there's the cholera that's coming from one end to the other. All the world is gonna clock. The pharmacists keep saying, here it comes, there's no repentance. If you don't buy your chlorine, sulfur and your disinfectants. There's the cholera, there's the cholera, there's the cholera that's coming from one end to the other. Oh, the world is gonna cock. There's the cholera, there's the cholera, there's the cholera that's coming from one end to the other. Oh, the world is gonna cock. The sacristans and abbots chant the mob into euphoria While trying to coax the stiffs inside their sacred emporia There's the cholera, there's the cholera, there's the cholera that's coming from one end to the other All the world is gonna cock There's the cholera, there's the cholera, there's the cholera that's coming from one end to the other All the world is gonna cock For making beers, they're all investing in the raw materials. They're flogging coffins at the gates of graveyards, both and wholesale. There's a cholera, there's a cholera, there's a cholera that's coming from one end to the other. All the world is gonna come. There's a cholera, there's a cholera, there's a cholera that's coming from one end to the other. All the world is gonna come. Each morning before midday, everyone surveys the vast grave. They haul the coldies out and pile them up in bulk, the last wave. There's a cholera, there's a cholera, there's a cholera that's coming from one end to the other. All the world is gonna cock. There's a cholera, there's a cholera, there's a cholera that's coming from one end to the other. All the world is gonna cock. The dear Lord from the top of Sakhraka sings with his clicker. The sanctimonious sods join in, snuff a rapal There's a cholera, there's a cholera, there's a cholera that's coming from one end to the other. Oh, the world is gonna cock. There's a cholera, there's a cholera. There's a cholera that's coming from one end to the other. Oh, the world is gonna cock. I'm Ernie Singer, and this is your daily newscast from Israel News Talk Radio. 
An initial investigation by the Israeli and Palestinian Authority security establishments indicates that the Monday evening shooting death of a PA security officer near the Sumerian PA town of Deir Sharaf was a PA criminal incident. The Jerusalem Post says initial PA media reports blamed area Israelis. The European Commissioner for Neighborhood and Enlargement called on the European Union on Monday to review the conditions under which it gives funding to PA education. He was responding to a European Commission study which found that PA textbooks contain many elements that educate for anti-Semitism, glorification of terror and terrorists, and the denial of Israel's right to exist. Writing on Twitter, Hungarian diplomat Oliver Varhey cited a firm commitment to fight anti-Semitism and full adherence to UNESCO's standards of peace, tolerance, coexistence, nonviolence in Palestinian textbooks. Hundreds protested on Monday at various locations in Judea and Samaria against unauthorized construction by PA residents in Area C, which constitutes some 60% of the territory and is under full Israeli security and civil control. They accused the government of turning a blind eye to the building and called for greater enforcement, while the Samarian Jewish community of Eviatar faces demolition subject to legal appeals. The Israel Public Broadcasting Corporation reports Hamas threatened on Monday to resume terror balloon attacks on Israel and rioting along the Gaza security fence if the Jewish state does not allow Qatar to transfer $30 million to help pay Gaza salaries. The threat came after a meeting with the United Nations delegation in which Middle East Peace Coordinator Tori Wenesland relayed Israel's stance that restrictions imposed after the recent Gaza area violence would not be discussed until the return of two living Israelis and the bodies of two soldiers killed during 2014's fighting in Gaza is resolved, although Israel did allow Gaza agricultural and textile exports on Monday. Hamas said the meeting went poorly and accused the UN of not being helpful. Citing Jerusalem's Al-Aqud's Arabic newspaper, the Jerusalem Post reports Hamas also expressed opposition to an Israeli demand that the PA be exclusively responsible for Gaza reconstruction and delivery of the Qatari grants. Visiting Chief of Staff Aviv Kochavi of the Israel Defense Forces warned United States defense officials on Monday against rejoining the 2015 Iranian nuclear deal, calling it dangerous and stressing shortcomings which will allow Iran to make significant progress related to centrifuges for enriching uranium and the lack of supervision in terms of nuclear proliferation. According to an IDF statement, Kochavi said that all options should be exhausted to prevent the Islamic Republic from acquiring military nuclear capabilities. They also discussed Gaza and the replenishing of Israel's Iron Dome anti-missile defense following last month's fighting. Citing the Saudi Gazette, Israel National News reports Saudi Arabia's foreign minister stressed swift and comprehensive inspection of all Iranian nuclear sites during Monday talks with the Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency. Monday saw newly elected Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi dismiss the possibility of any negotiations over Iran's ballistic missile program and its support of terror groups, despite calls by Western countries for them to be part of any new nuclear agreement. He ruled out talks with U.S. President Joe Biden, and the White House said the feeling was mutual. Ahead of President Reuven Rivlin's farewell visit to Washington next week, the Jerusalem Post reports Prime Minister Naftali Bennett hopes to go back to a no-surprises-no-daylight relationship with the White House, despite disagreements on the likely U.S. return to the Iran nuclear deal. Rivlin is expected to meet with Bennett and Defense Minister Benny Gantz in the next few days to discuss the agenda. A source close to the Prime Minister said on Monday, We won't be on board with any agreement with Iran, but we can influence it and influence what happens if Iran violates the agreement if we are part of the conversation. The highest daily coronavirus infection rate in two months was registered on Monday, with 125 people testing positive after local outbreaks of the Delta variant were reported across the country. Director General Hezi Levy of the Health Ministry told Israeli television that about 70% of the new infections were with the Delta variant. He also noted that half of those infected were children and that a third of those infected had been vaccinated. Citing an interview with Yidiot Akronot, Arucheva reports he recommends putting a mask on in crowded places and on public transportation, with binding orders possible for affected areas, such as the northern community of Binyamina, where 89 people were recorded as infected on Monday. This has been Ernie Singer at Israel News Talk Radio. The news from Israel is courtesy of INTR, Israel News Talk Radio. Listen online to more straight talk from Israel at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Now, the Saturday before last, I received an email from a friend, Barry Spanger, who received it from his friend, Leon Group, who received it from his lifelong friend in South Africa, our next guest, David Hirsch. I read the email and was blown away and decided to track David down. David Hirsch, welcome to L'Chaim, to Life, Connecting Our Jewish World. Yes, thank you very much. Very kind of you to invite me. Thank you. 
David, you are the chairman of SIPAC, the South African Israel Public Affairs Committee, Cape Town. Please, what is SIPAC? What, what's its raise on DETRA? It's uh, an Israel support uh, group of people, and uh, we do a number of things. It started some time back, uh, really some time back, uh, when I was still uh, a national vice chairman of the Zionist Federation, and in my personal capacity, together with two other gentlemen, I um, decided, we, we, I wrote a, a petition to remove Desmond Tutu, the Archbishop, from being the patron of our Holocaust Center, because I had done a great deal of research, and uh, he, he had, over the years, come out with a lot of anti-Semitic uh, statements. And uh, that started the whole thing. It embarrassed the Holocaust Center, who, in my humble opinion, went creeping back to him on their stomach. And um, from that time onwards, after I had finished my term as uh, chairman or vice chairman from, of the national thing, we decided to get together and form a group where we would fight for Israel without any restrictions from uh, the establishment that we have here. So let me just uh, give our listeners a little bit more background about you. Well, as I said, you're chairman of SIPAC, the South African-Israel Public Affairs Committee. You're former chairman of the South African Zionist Federation in the Cape Council, as well as a former national vice chairman of the South African Zionist Federation, also a former member of the South African Jewish Board of Deputies, Cape Council. You're now a retired businessman and broadcaster, David, you reside in Cape Town. What is the Jewish population of Cape Town and, and South Africa in general? Jewish population, <laughs> Cape Town is, uh, I'm, I'm guessing now, it used to be at about 14,000. I think it's down to 12. And uh, the total uh, population of uh, Jews in South Africa, which used to be about 130,000, is now down to about 50,000. The majority live in Johannesburg and the 12,000 in Cape Town. A little bit in Durban. And many in Australia. <laughs> and a lot in Australia. <laughs> many in Australia. Um, David, I've read your last three op-eds, your writings. I love them. When did you start putting pen to paper? I've been writing for a long time, um, for many years. Uh, it started when I, at the time of the Durban Conference, the first United Nations Durban Conference, the, uh, it was obvious what was going to happen there, and I started the first media response uh, in South Africa in favor of Israel to counter what they were doing there. And uh, that's when I started and started writing. So it's, it's, it's many years ago. And of course, as one gains knowledge, one writes better. Terrific. Durban, that was about, that was a Jew hatred conference some 20 years ago. The infamous, been, uh, the infamous Durban conference. David, the first email uh, I received was titled Sisyphus and our never-ending task as Jews. Please give our Lechaim, Nicks, a bit of a summary about your Sisyphus metaphor, which I think is brilliant. Well, Sisyphus is a figure from Greek mythology uh, who, as a king, became infamous for his general trickery and twice-cheating death. He ultimately got his comeuppance when Zeus dealt him the eternal punishment of forever rolling a boulder up a hill in the depths of Hades and of course never quite making it to the top and then it would roll down and he would have to roll it back up. It's an endless task. And that was the, the analogy that I used for our endless task fighting anti-Semitism and now anti-Zionism. And uh, what's inspired me with that was watching a uh, debate between Melanie Phillips and Anat uh, Wilf, who was a member of uh, Knesset, and on the other side, Ilan Papa and Mehdi Hassan, who were against the motion. In other words, saying that uh, anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism. And I was annoyed with the debate and the way it went, and, and that's what I described there and discussed. It is, it is excellent, and I love your... Uh... T.S. Eliot description of people like Pap and Hassan. We are the hollow men. We are the stuffed men, leaning together, headpiece filled with straw. Alas, our dried voices when we whisper together are quiet and meaningless as wind in dry grass or rats feed over broken glass in our dry cellar 
Shape without form, shade without colour, paralysed force, gesture without motion. Those who have crossed with direct eyes to death's other kingdom, remember us, if at all, not as lost, violent souls, but only the hollow men, the stuffed men. Well done. Terrific little uh, little uh, quote from T.S. Eliot. The irony that I used in it as well, for those who would know, is that uh, the the poet, T.S. Eliot, was an anti-Semite. So, <laughs> yeah. I, so it has a double meaning and that I used it against the anti-Semites. <laughs> Absolutely. David, let me read out your Palestinian Arabs and their days of rage. As I said, this was printed in Arut Sheva a couple of days ago. Every day is a day of hatred and violence on the Palestinian Arab calendar. Why don't they stop using Allah as an excuse for it all? So will we have another day of rage for a change and then a day of anger followed by a day of outrage, a day of violence, a day of being miffed, a day of peak? As if that isn't enough, we'll then have a day of fury, a day of hatred, a day of tantrums and a day of enmity. Being endlessly enraged, we will follow all this with a day of vexation, a day of animosity, a day of being irked, a day of hurt feelings, a day of temper, a day of being unhinged, which could be every day, a day of raving and a day of delirium. As if this is not enough, and as there are on average 30 or 31 days of a month, we go on to a day of being wild, a day of madness, which actually is also every day, a day of frenzy, a day of hysteria, a day of fuming. What fun we're all having, and it certainly beats trying to earn a living and doing work. God forbid. Then we continue with a day of wrath, a day of irritation, a day of wounding, a day of incitement, a day of destruction, followed by our latest invention, a day of stabbing. Whilst God rested after six days, we don't, and on the 31st day we sit down and plan how we will start all over again, and the world, which we clearly understand is stupid, gutless, and even on a clear day can't see further than their noses, will not do a thing because they also hate the Jews more than they fear or dislike us, the poor downtrodden Arabs and Islamists who only want to change the world into our image and destroy it essentially so we can control it and reap its riches for ourselves. Not forgetting taking the world back to the Dark Ages and when Muhammad, peace be upon him and absolutely no one else, strode the Arabian Peninsula on a camel. Let us not forget Allah in all this and thank him for being such a convenient excuse for our human frailties, foibles, greed and madness. Luckily, we don't believe in the Ten Commandments as they would be such a hindrance and thou shalt not covet really does get in the way, not to mention thou shalt not kill. So David Hirsch. <laughs> yeah, I did that uh, obviously tongue-in-cheek and to give them a bit of a virtual, <laughs> what we would call a club. <laughs> a virtual club, uh, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that was, uh, you know, and, and, and I had fun writing that, actually. Terrific. So, yeah. And you sent me a another piece this morning, the um, latest effort which I received this morning. Frightening levels of incompetence are a great dilemma for the USA and the rest of us. Take us through that, please. And I read in it that at APAC in the States, you once stood next to the unimpressive <laughs> Senator Joe Biden. Please run us through frightening levels in, of incompetence. Yes, well, uh, looking at uh, Biden, as I do every day because uh, the television has him, yeah, not South African television, I don't watch South African uh, television. And, they, and I listen to the independent stations when I'm in the, in the car as far as radio is concerned. But um, the international uh, media are obviously covering him. You can see, obviously, that he is cognitively challenged. Well, I discussed him and what he's doing and what he has done. I discussed uh, Kamala Harris, who I don't think is too wonderful. And I think both of them, there's a thing called in management, the... Uh, Peter Principle, and they are both beyond their levels of competence. And I go on to discuss that. So we discuss that, and then, of course, uh, we come to talking about Biden. In 2016, when the uh, elections were taking place between uh, Hillary Clinton and Obama and Biden standing as candidates for the uh, Democrats, they came to APAC, where I was, and I, after listening to Hillary, 
wandered into Biden's hall that he was speaking and by chance happened to be right next to him and he got up on a chair to speak to the crowd. I had no idea who he was. I knew who Obama was, I knew who Hillary was, but I had no idea who Biden was. And I came to the conclusion afterwards that this was an empty suit. The man had a chutzpah to actually uh, put his name forward to be president. It's also mm-hmm. the reason ultimately he fell away, of course, and it's also the reason I believe why Obama chose him. And to be absolutely blunt, he would have no uphill whatsoever from uh, Biden, and quite, and he served a purpose as a malleable white man next to him, giving the right uh, impression that he, as a, a, the first black candidate, uh, was not anti-white. Yeah. Yeah, I call him dead man walking and 10% Joe. David, we've got a lot of South African expats in Australia and people want to follow you and people want to read these great articles. What should they do? Uh, First of all, I am on Facebook, David Hirsch with an H-E-R-S-C-H. And uh, that's when I'm unbanned. You'll be able to uh, read my (laughs) stuff again, but there's plenty of stuff there. Um, They can write to me. My email is david.com. Hirsch, H-E-R-S-C-H, dot C-T, Charlie Tango, that's uh, for Cape Town, at gmail.com. That's easy. So it's David, dot Hirsch, dot C-T, at gmail.com. And I welcome them. I'll add them to my mailing list. And, of course, they can follow me on Facebook as well. Terrific. David Hirsch, Chairman of SIPAC, the South African Israel Public Affairs Committee. Yasha Koyach to you. Keep up your great work. Thank you for so much for joining us on L'Chaim to Life, Connecting Our Jewish World. Let's have you back in a few months for a, another South African update. Uh, that'll be very nice indeed. Thank you very much. And just before I go, seeing your Australians, I want to tell you that in my younger years, I was a lifeguard on the beach, in the helicopters, and I was on the national body of that as well. Terrific. Terrific. Thanks, David. Stay well. Yasha Koyach. I'm Leif Trot.
Paz, bring him home in Hebrew. How good was that? I can recall the very first time I heard bring him home from Les Miserables. Brings back fond memories with my father. About 47 years ago, we were watching a weekly current affairs program. Can't remember, 12 o'clock or 1pm on Sunday afternoon on Channel 9. Can't remember the name of the program. I remember closing out the program, they played a song. And I was talking to uh, my dad and all of a sudden a song caught my attention. And did it what? What a stunning performance from the new musical Les Mis. I said, Tata, listen to this. And we both loved it. Dad used to love listening to Ron Lees on Sunnyside Up, Perry Como and the great Andy Williams, as well as Yiddish songs, of course. I miss you dearly, Reuben Klein. Now, explore Israel with Effie. Masada, Caesarea, Jerusalem. For many, these places are no more than the name of a city or national park. However, for others, these places are far more than just names of a place on a map. These sites are some of the many hidden gems which exemplify and are an integral part of our Jewish history, heritage and culture. Allow me to take you on a journey back into time and see history unfold before your eyes. Tread on the land where ancient mighty empires once existed and ruled and walk in the footsteps of the biblical figures from the Old and New Testament in order to hear, feel, touch and taste this magical land of Eretz Israel. Explore Israel with Effie for an unforgettable experience. Effie Yacobi, welcome back to L'Chaim. Shalom, shalom, Bokotov, Moshe and all your listeners on 92.3 FM. Triple Z Z Z three triple Z. That's the one. That's no the one. You nearly left the th- you nearly left the three out. It's an important. It's an important three. It's an important 100%, three. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. If he has the week been first week in uh, in government, and uh, a nice present for them is that all of a sudden the spike in numbers have gone up. So uh, that's a real introduction into the yeah, <laughs> real politics of what we're happening here. Ridiculous that people still entering here. There was some stuff up at the airport. People weren't tested. 250 people entered. Now 3,000 students are already in isolation because of it. One stupid family who went to Dubai. Not that it was stupid to go to Dubai, but the kids weren't vaccinated. They caught it. They came back. They weren't tested. They went home. Bingo. That's it. Ending the Mesa. All of a sudden, that's a geschäft. The whole school. Everybody's cut down. Then another one from Modin. All of a sudden, we find ourselves... New restrictions are going to be put into place. The masks are going to come back in. And uh, let's just hope that they can contain it because Bennett is a real stickler for procedures. Within 24 hours, 250 extra cops were stationed in uh, Bengaluan Airport. And from 30 checking stations, there's 75 checking stations. No one can enter the country without a test on the spot, you know, a serology test. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to contain it. And the uh, order is if you don't have a reason to go overseas, stay at home. So that's where Absolutely. we are at the moment. Absolutely. We, we back here in Australia and especially Melbourne are familiar with COVID screw-ups. So we have our own. But nevertheless, where are you taking us today? Right. Hi, guys. Bokertov from Effie. Let's go explore Israel with Effie. We're still stationed along the coastal line because it's accessible to everybody before we start moving inland. And once again, we're going to a phenomenal place for families with kids and those without, but the real nature lovers, we're going to Nachal Alexander, the Alexander River National Park. And that's centrally located on Route 2 between Chadera and Natanya. You turn off at the Bet Yanai interchange towards Michmoret. Best season all year round. You can't miss it out. And you don't have to go far than Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 9. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters. So what is the source of this Alexander River in the name of this Nachal? Nachal in Hebrew is a stream or a river. 
it would be convenient to assume that it was named after the Hashmonaim king, Alexander Yanai, who conquered the coastal area, especially since the settlement of Bet Yanai is named after him. However, the truth is exactly the opposite. The river, the Nachal, is called Iskandurun in Arabic, apparently after an important folklore figure in Arab literature, and the name Nachal Alexander is from that origin. The main stream bed originates in the Sumerian hills, and of course, the main problems of the Nachal Alexander, as we all know when you're near factories, is the waste material of the Hefe Valley uh, streaming into it, and that is a major headache. But several features are shared by these coastal streams and are quite apparent in the case of this Nachal and its estuary at the Mediterranean Sea. The movement of sand in the sea from the southeast blocks up the mouth of the river in the summer, preventing its water from reaching the sea. The shifting sands, which the wave toss up on the shore, reach an impasse at the southern bank, where the northern bank sedentary sands develop. But this river and its shoreline hold great promise as a vacation and recreation area, boating, fishing, beach activities, great stuff for the whole families. What's the main attraction that we have here? It really is the soft-shelled turtles and the grey mullet fish. may seem to be ordinary stuff for people overseas, but for us it's really important in such a small country to keep the wildlife intact. And among the animal life is this soft-shelled turtle, and it's of special interest. It is the largest of the reptiles that live in the country, except for the crocodile, which is exterminated back in the last one back in 1912. The turtle is large and smooth and doesn't have a rigid, hard, protective shell. Rather, its outer skin is supple and can attain a length of 60 centimetres. Turtle lives in the water but breathes air from the atmosphere, and thus occasionally you see them lift their snout up and nostrils above the water in order to breathe. Real exciting feature for the kiddies. Now, when the slaughterhouse of Kvavitkin began to channel its waste products into the river, the turtles ate these nutrients and began to flourish. Not bad. Direct line. Every year there are many nests where the females lay their eggs and dozens of young turtles emerge, adding to the population of the Nachal. In the winter, a process takes place in the estuary of the river, which is common among the coastal riverbeds. The stormy sea whips up large waves and breaks up the sand barriers at the end of the stream, drawing the fresh water flow into the salt water of the Mediterranean. This provides passage for the grey mullet, a sea fish, which goes a short distance upstream to lay its eggs in fresh water. Now, in 1994, the local Israel Council for Protection of Streams, together with the Jewish National Fund, decided to attend the problem of the waste materials spilling into the Nachal. A detailed plan was put forward to channel clean and purified water into the Nachal, and a number of reservoirs were built along its course, holding the sources of pollution in check, and the water is undergoing purification. The stream is lined with picnic tables and a 2.8-kilometre trail which begins at the eucalyptus grove, close to Route 4, and ends at the Turtle Bridge, the major site for the internal tourism next to Kfar Vitkin, and it's parallel to the Trans-Israel Trail itself. So, guys, what more do you need for this great little place that has so much history around the Moshavim and the settlements around it as well? Once again, 10 minutes outside of Netanya, 35 minutes outside of Tel Aviv. You just grab the car, you got the missus, you got the kids, you bung them in, you got the boot, you got the esky, you don't need more than that. You go out, you can spend two, three, four hours out there easily, picnics nonstop during the summer, a great place for the nature lovers along the trails. What better place that this country can offer, not just history and religion and peoples, but obviously recreation benefits as well. So that's all from me from Effie on Let's Explore Israel with Effie on 92.3 FM 3 triple Z. And I hope you enjoyed the tour before we continue on next week and we go deeper into the inland side of Israel. Wonderful, Effie. That's wonderful. Effie, before you go, I remember you doing a segment uh, with me on Shabbat Shalom about the turtles. The numbers were a bit of a concern. How are the numbers these days? No, no, they're, they're stable and increasing nonstop. Again, during the massive purification efforts, you wouldn't be able to recognise the place if you went five years and you come today. Complete transformation of the whole area. Uh, the water much, much cleaner, which means wildlife, bird life, turtles, mullets, all are thriving. Great place to come and visit.
Fantastic. All right, Effie, we'll catch you again next week. Stay well, mate. Right, shalom, shalom. Have a peaceful weekend from Effie here in Eretz Israel. Till next time, and once again, we go explore Israel with Effie. Take care, Thanks. guys. Thanks, mate. The jury. This court will please come to order. Mr. Rabinowitz, you are the foreman of the jury. Have you reached a verdict? Judge, Your Honor, we have been listening to the facts in this case for six weeks, and it has been a wonderful experience for us all. We, the jury, would like to thank you for the way you have conducted this case. Thank you, Mr. Rabinowitz. But the verdict, please. Certainly, Your Honor. We, the jury, Mr. Cohen, Mr. Fine, Mr. Landsberg, the lovely Mrs. Berkowitz. Thank you, Mr. Robinowitz. You're welcome. Mr. Robinowitz, the verdict. Coming, Your Honor. Mr. Goldberg, Mr. Katz, Mr. Stein, Mrs. Cantor, Mr. The lovely Mrs. Cantor. Lovely. Mr. Rabinowitz. Mr. Finkelstein, Mr. Bloom, and Mr. Pinkus the Furrier. <laughs> Your Honor, the 12 of us have spent the past four days in the jury room debating this case. And we examined the evidence pro and con in backwards and forwards to decide in the American way, did he or didn't he do it? <laughs> Mr. Rabinowitz, the verdict, and now. Immediately, Your Honor. We, the jury, after careful deliberation on this case, have decided we shouldn't make sin. The jury from You Don't Have to Be Jewish. I still pish myself every time I hear it. One of my favourite quintessential Jewish sticks. I can listen to it time and time again. I love it. Now, let's have a listen to Justin Amler. Justin was a big contributor to Shabbat Shalom with his excellent writings, and we'll be continuing that here in L'Chaim. Justin had an extremely serious, inexplicable health scare last year, and we spoke about it on Shabbat Shalom. We'll have Justin on Lachaim in the ensuing weeks to fill us in on how everything is going. This is Justin Amler. Let me tell you about Jews. There's a deadly virus inhabiting our world right now. But this is not a virus that is recent, but is one that has been around for thousands of years, and no face masks or social distancing will prevent it either. It grows and festers and it simmers, and eventually it explodes. In fact, it's exploding right now in every corner of the world, and in its wake lies plenty of tears and plenty of heartbreak and plenty of fear. There are those who try to fight it, and we should be encouraged by that. But it's an uphill battle against a dark force that refuses to be deterred or deflected or deflated. And arguments of logic and education and common sense fall by the wayside when it comes to this virus, for it is a fight against evil itself. If I'm being polite, I would call this virus anti-Semitism. But to be honest, there's a sanitized version of what it really is. And perhaps the time has come to do away with such terms and such niceties and call it by its true name, Jew hatred. Now the problem with, the, with Jew hatred is that unlike the whole movement against racism in general, Jews don't get the kind of widespread support you'd expect in any society that wants to see itself as a leader in the fight against injustice. In fact, it's the opposite. We have seen so many people and so many organizations get castigated and cast out and shunned for racist activities going back decades at times. Some are completely justified and some are completely ridiculous because to judge movies made 50 years ago with the same standards as today doesn't teach you about history and how society has changed. It wipes out history itself as if every moment leading up today no longer exists. They call it cancelling and right now there are movements all around the world that want to cancel the Jewish people through cancelling history itself. But this is not a new phenomenon. In fact, it's almost as old as the entire Jewish people themselves. The Amalekites wage war against us continuously from biblical times, hoping to wipe us out. The Greeks tried to do it by forcing us to give up our beliefs, which led to the Maccabean revolt in the famous story of Hanukkah. The Romans also tried it around 70 to 136 CE when they massacred our people, renamed Judea to Syria, Palestina, which was purposely and maliciously done 
using the names of two of our traditional enemies, the Syrians and the Philistines. And yes, that's where the name Palestine comes from, certainly not from any ancient people called the Palestinians. And like the Greeks, they also try to ethnically cleanse the land by forcibly expelling us from our land. The Russians led many pogroms to wipe out small, harmless communities because to them we were foreigners that didn't belong in Mother Russia. In Europe, the church led movements to force us to convert under pain of death. They just couldn't reconcile the fact that Jesus still existed when we weren't supposed to anymore, according to their doctrine. And the Nazis didn't even care what we believed. They just wanted to destroy us completely. And with hope for many ordinary people, they almost did. In more modern times, the international institutions of the United Nations and the European Union, among others, are trying it once again, passing resolutions that say our history didn't exist and we have no right to the land that has been ours for thousands of years. They don't call these things pogroms, by the way. They call it international law. The terrorist organizations of Hamas and the Palestinian Authority and the various offshoots continue this, not only denying all archaeological evidence, but actually destroying the evidence discovered such as what they do when they do illegal excavations at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And this, by the way, continues right now. Then we have what some would say are social justice organizations, ones like the BDS whose dream is the destruction of the Jewish state, as well as the Black Lives Movement organization whose charter is drenched in Jew hatred. They accuse the Jews of genocide and colonialism while ignoring the true colonialists of the area, which are the Arabs. And even in the power corridor of the most powerful democracy in the world, the United States, Jew hatred runs rampant with elected officials like Rashida Talab and Ilan Omar, recently endorsed by Nancy Pelosi, who continue their poisonous tirades. Now there are those who do speak up against Jew hatred, figures like Charles Barkley and Karim Abdul-Jabbar and others, and they should rightly be respected for their moral fortitude. Unfortunately, they are few, and many people who promote Jew hatred are widely praised, people like Louis Farrakhan and the far too many celebrities who look up to him as some kind of hero. And one of the main problems in the fight against Jew hatred is that even among those who fight it, they often do it from a political viewpoint rather than a moral one. They say blacks and Jews must stand together in the fight against white supremacy by ignoring the fact that Jew hatred doesn't care what colour you are. Because Lou Farrakhan and Nick Cannon and Ice Cube and the leadership of Black Lives Matter and the Women's March and the BDS and the United Nations and the Palestinian Authority and Hamas and Hezbollah and Iran and a thousand others can hardly be described as white supremacists. The reality is that Jew hatred comes from all colors and all sectors of society. It comes from black people and white people and brown people and those who try to narrow down to white supremacy only are not supporting the Jewish cause but rather supporting their own one instead. Jews around the world are more alert now than ever because we have to be. We do have friends who support us, many, but we also need to understand that the history of Jew hatred is not one born of a certain color or a particular political view, but of a deep-seated hatred that has not faded over time, but strengthened. And you cannot fight a hatred like that by being docile and siding with those who want to destroy us in the vain attempt they'll change their views. Instead, you fight it with loud voices and a strength of purpose and the knowledge and the confidence that no matter how many attacks and attempts are made to wipe us out, there are some things in life that cannot and will never be cancelled. This is Justin Amler for Lechaim to Life. And now for headlines from tomorrow's Australian Jewish News, the voice of Australia's Jewish community. Tomorrow's Australian Jewish News headlines. Survivors gulp to seek new homes. ABC apologises for Israel errors. Government urged to ban Hezbollah. Lazaro Sorry for TBI turmoil. Anti-Israel activists target bottle shop and schools. Online prayer platform launched. Shtick's TV future hangs in the balance. Bennett warns world over hangman of Tehran. COVID surge in Israel. To read more coverage of local, federal and international news, opinion, arts, lifestyle and sport, pick up your copy of the Australian Jewish News from newsagents and supermarkets in southeast of Melbourne or for weekly home delivery, subscribe.
subscribe at subscribe.jewishnews.net.au. Have you heard the news? What did it say? That's it for another Lachaim. Two life, Jewish life and more. Job well done, Murray Frankel with Professor Sharon Lewin with the cholera, COVID and AIDS. Exploring Israel with Effie took us to the stunning Nachal Alexander River with the turtle and mullet fish. If you would like to get in contact with Effie, his email is effyak, E-F-Y-A-A-C, at netvision.net.il. Justin Amler, let me tell you about Jews. Powerful as always. Please follow Justin Amler on Facebook for plenty more of his excellent writings. And of course, I headed over to South Africa and met Saipak's David Hirsch, who is doing great work for Israel and the Jewish world. David is also an excellent writer. Listeners will recall that a few weeks back, our guest was Judith Firestone with B'nai Brief Showcase, fostering Jewish musical talent, and a reminder that registration closed in two days' time on the 25th. There's still a little time to submit a performance. All the showcase information is on the B'nai Brief website. Hatsola, emergency first responders that save lives, many lives, are having their annual fundraiser. Please go to the Hatsola website and support them. You just never know. L'Chaim is part of the Jewish group here at 92.3 FM, 3 Z. The other two programs are Shabbat Shalom in Hebrew, 3 to 4 p.m. on Friday, and the Yiddish Hour, 11 a.m. to 12 midday on Sunday. Well worth checking out. Podcasts of today's program will be available on the 3 Z website, the home page, and along with the L'Chaim and Morris Klein Facebook pages. If you would like to contact us here at L'Chaim, the email is lchaim3zzz at gmail.com. My thanks again to Team L'Chaim, our EP, Dr. George Banky, Murray Frankel and Jeff Deacon. We'll be back next week, and until then... Stay well. L'chaim. Am Yisrael Chai. And peace. The Diamond. It's a very nice flight, isn't it? Very nice. By the way, I can't help but admire that fabulous diamond ring you are wearing. Oh, thank you. (laughs) I've never seen anything like it. Yeah, it's 40 carats. It's the famous Plotnik and Diamond. The Plotnik Diamond? Forgive my ignorance, but I'm not familiar with it. Well, uh, between the Star of India and the Hope Diamond is the Plotnik Diamond. I never knew. You know, I would give anything to own a diamond like that. Oh, believe me, you wouldn't want it. Along with this diamond comes a case. The Plotnik case. The Plotnik curse. (gasps) Isn't that romantic? Not so romantic. If you know what kind of a case goes along with it, it's terrible. What is the curse that goes along with it? Mr. Plotnik. Thank you.